Hi, it's John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host Caroline Diarty Edwards and Maria Wickvilla. Caroline, of course, is the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions and the former director of admissions at NCOD. And Maria is the founder of Applicant Lab. So it's January, and the early birds out there are beginning to think about applying in round one in the fall, or even round two next year. So what we want to explore with both Maria and Caroline is what kind of timeline should you adopt to get yourself in the best possible position to apply? Everything from when should you start preparing for the GMAT, when should you take the test, if you want to hire a consultant to help you guide the way, when should you do that, and how should you work with a consultant, how do you decide which school to apply to, how do you do the research to do that, when do you actually start the process of introspection that leads to crafting those often difficult essays. So. Caroline, if I'm interested in applying round one in the fall, I've got plenty of time. Should I really start focusing on it now? Yeah. I mean, there's no time like the present and it's better to start too early than too late. So yeah, I I think something that is really important to get out of the way as soon as possible is the GMAT. And for many people, that will take several months and it normally takes longer than they expect. So now is a good time to be working on that. And, you know, I would say ideally plan getting it out the way by the spring. So if for a candidate who hasn't yet done the GMAT, I would say, you know, that's the first thing to start with. Now, do you start with a practice test? And if you don't do well, do you make the decision to enter a class or get a tutor? Yeah, it's great to start with a practice test. And sometimes, you know, candidates are reluctant to do that because it's a bit scary to actually put yourself through the test when you haven't had a chance to prepare and and often people are horrified by the the results that they get but that's a good it's a good wake up call i mean it, it is a tough test and even if you know you have a really strong quant background and you know you you've got the fundamental ability you you just have to get familiar with the format of the tests and be able to recognize easily the traps that they're setting for you in 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 the gmat but for the vast majority of people, it does take some significant preparation to really do themselves justice. So great idea to start with a practice test. Get, you and, know, and you might get, take a GRE practice test, too, to see which one you you feel more comfortable taking, right? Yes. Uh, and see you know which one suits you the best, because it's really fine to take either GMAT or GRE. So that's a great point. Take both and then see which you prefer. Right. Do you have any kind of advice for uh, GMAT versus GRE for people? I, I think, you know, just go with whichever suits you and, you know, wh- wherever you, whichever test you think you will do the best on. Now, why do I think Maria has a video about whether you should take the GMAT or the GRE on Applicant Lab? Why do I think that? I don't know. I, it's not like I like to make videos. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think the GMAT versus GRE, look, this is all very unscientific, but the, the I think the rumor out there is that the quant section of the GRE is a little bit easier, but the verbal section is a little bit harder. I don't believe that the GMAT asks any questions about esoteric vocabulary. Like they don't put up like, here's a crazy word you've never heard of. And what do you think it means? Versus I do think the GRE does that. And I think in terms of preparation, there's, you know, there's the whole gamut of you can hire someone to work with you one-on-one. You can take an online class. 
I think the bare minimum, though, that everyone should do is buy the official guide that the GMAC publishes every year, because those are the people who make the test, number one. So they know the test better than anyone else. And they usually explain in the guide, here's how, not just here's what the answer is, but here's how we got to that answer. And so if you do enough of those, you develop this sort of muscle memory. I think Caroline said something like, yeah, even if you're really, really good at math, you might do terribly on the GMAT quant because they are asking you to think a certain way and to catch certain tricks. Mm -hmm. And so if you read the official guide enough, you start to develop that muscle memory for identifying those tricks. So at a minimum, buy the official guide and read it religiously. And there's no set formula like, okay, I'm a poet, so I should take the GRE, or I'm a quant, so I should take the GMAT, right? I don't think so. No, I, I think it's really about, you know, individual preference. Yes. So so give both a try and that's great. You have two options and, and see and see how you do and see which, which route is better for you individually. And there was a time when a lot of schools preferred the GMAT. That is generally no longer true. And every single year, the GRE is gaining market share. More and more students are being admitted and enrolled with GRE scores rather than GMATs. So, the, and that is a sort of unmistakable trend that's really been evident in the last five years in particular. Mm. So, okay, so you you study for the GMAT. Now, if you, if you know that you might need help through this journey to a business school, should you be thinking about hiring a consultant if you have the money to do so? Well, I, I certainly think, you know, it's worth talking to some consultants and seeing you know, what they can offer and, you know, how they can potentially help you individually is a very personal choice. And it's important to pick someone where you've got good chemistry if you're going to be working with someone, you know, one-on-one over, over a period of months. So most firms offer free consultation. So, you know, do take advantage of that. And that's a great opportunity to also, you know, get some great free advice during those, those discussions. And now's a good time to be having those calls because, some great coaches do fill up early in the season. So, you know, do reach out now so that, you know, over the coming months, you can figure out if you want to work with someone and, and who would be the best fit for you. And now Maria, I should point out, offers a, a sort of a do-it-yourself solution. And it, obviously, it's much less expensive than hiring a consultant who will hold your hand through the entire process. How do you start people off in applicant lab? Yeah, sure. So we actually have a to-do list module that starts you right on the road. You know, one of the first things I advise people do is to do is, for example, sign up for the email lists of every school you might even, you know, even if you're only planning to apply to say five schools, sign up for 30, like any school that's even remotely on your radar, sign up for the email list, start attending the webinars. Uh, so that way you demonstrate interest. So that's one of the first tips I have uh, in Applicant Lab. And I do believe that some schools actually track they have sort of CRM systems effectively, for lack of a better term, that essentially track, like, did you open our email? Did you click on the link? Did you attend the webinar? Because some Oh my school- God, this is the, you know, I just watched The Social Dilemma for the second time last night. <laughs> have either of you watched this documentary? Oh, yes. No, no but it's, on my, it's on my list. Yeah. It is scary. And you're reminding me how scary it is. <laughs> the schools are tracking whether or not you open the emails that they send to you. So on Applicant Lab, that's one of the that's one of the first things I have on the to-do list. And so it's a, you know, in my software, I just guide you through all these steps and I give you exercises to do. I wanted to point out though, if you are going to work with a traditional consultant, there's two different ways to do it, right? You can buy either a comprehensive package, which is sort of a an all-you-can-eat type of type of deal, full service, or you can also buy a la carte hours. 
two hours, four hours here and there. And so I think that there's there's a possibility, you know, he, so one thing, for example, that a lot of people do is that they will buy applicant lab software and then they can either hire someone on my team for additional help, or very often they might go to another consultant and say, I used applicant lab to get, you know, 90% of the way there, but I want to run this past someone else. Let me buy a two hour package or a four hour package at some other firm. And I've actually had like a, a couple of good referrals back and forth with some some individual admissions consultants who are like, hey, this client came to me, but their budget is too low. Can we work something out where they buy your service and then I give them advice on the back end? And so there's a lot of different ways out there to, to structure that getting that advice in ways that are um, that is cost effective for anyone. And if you're going to hire a consultant, is it better to already have a GMAT score or a GRE score in hand? Or should you be doing it now as you prep for the uh, standardized test? Well, I mean, we, we start working with people who've got the test and, and people who are just working on it and, you know, have a target date for taking the test and will take it later. So, so I think, you know, anything goes. But I mean, I think it's ideal for the candidate to just get the test out the way if they can before really thinking about the application, right? Because typically MBA candidates have very busy day jobs, you know, not nine to five jobs, you know, they have pretty intense schedules. And it's not fun to have to, you know, if you work 12 hours a day to come home or, you know, put your laptop away and then turn your attention to GMAT prep. It's, it's tough. It's a lot to juggle to try and do the GMAT as well as be working on your application and all of the school research and networking, et cetera, et cetera, and on top of everything else. So, so I think, you know, it's more efficient and more comfortable to get the test out the way first if you can. And these tests are valid for five years, right? So right. You, know, you can do it a couple of years in advance. I mean, we, we often work with candidates who've, who've done it way ahead of time. And, you know, for many people, it's often easier to get the test done right when they graduated from undergrad, because they're still in the mode of taking tests. They're, you know, they've got that sort of academic mindset still. The further ahead you are in your career and the, and the longer you've been out of academia, often it's harder for people to get back into the mode of taking a test and it can take them more time to do really well on the GMAT. So if you know, you're just finishing up college and you think that you might want to do an MBA in the future, why not take the test then? And the research also shows that, in fact, the longer you are out of undergraduate school or a, a master's program and you take the mm -hmm. test, you score lower because yeah. you're not used to taking tests anymore. Yeah. Now, one reason to hire a consultant early is you get the pick of the lot. You know, some of the most in-demand consultants uh, get booked up very quickly. So if, in fact, you want to pick a consultant who's in high demand, it's probably a good idea to get hooked up early, even if you might not be calling that consultant uh, and engaging with a consultant on a regular basis this early in the process, right? Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, you, you can sign up early and, and then focus on your GMAT. You don't have to start the process of working your application immediately, but you, you get into someone's schedule. Okay, so you take the test in the spring, and then let's say you score a 700, and you want to go to Harvard where the median is 730. What do you do? I mean, I think it's it's a, you know, admissions officers say all the time it's a holistic process, and I know that's infuriatingly vague for candidates to hear, <laughs> but I think it's true. Yeah, that score is below the average for Harvard, but 
you know, the average for Harvard is still the average. That means that 50% of the class got below a 730. And so, you know, I, I think you would need to take a really honest look at your overall candidacy and say to yourself, okay, do I have other evidence in my profile that shows, for example, that I am capable of high levels of analytical or quantitative work? Have I been a real standout? Maybe what I might lack in GMAT score, I might make up for if I have been just a sort of off the charts leadership, you know, rising the ranks, skyrocketing up the corporate ladder. If, if, if you've had like a, a tremendous amount of success compared to your peers, I think that they're often willing to overlook those lower scores. However, if you are in a very overrepresented group, if you, let's say you work in a large firm, like a consulting firm or a bank, and you're kind of, you know, you're just one out of a thousand people with very similar resumes, it's so hard to stand out in the process. You may want to consider a retake or a switch to the GRE at that point. Right. So let's say you get a score and you're, you're happy with it and you're in the spring. Now, what do you do? Well, so, so I would say after you've done the GMAT or the GRE, intensify your research into the schools. As Maria said, you know, it's great to sign up for all of the mailing lists and, you know, follow the event. In the past, of course, there were physical events that you could attend. Maybe those will happen again in the future. But for the time being, the schools are offering a lot of different online events. So that's a wonderful way to find out about the schools and get a sense for the different cultures and the difference in the communities. And you can't shortcut that process. And you shouldn't just, you know, look at the rankings or see, you know, well, my colleagues went to these schools. So, of course, I want to go to those. That's just my short list of schools. You really have to kick the tires on your research and have, you know, a a clear understanding of the differences between the programs and some really good reasons why you're a good fit with a particular school. And that takes it, it takes time to figure that out. So you, you need to invest some significant time in, in that type of research and, and networking and, and speaking with people who are graduates or who are currently at the school. And the more of those conversations you have, the better, because everyone has a different experience. Everyone will have a different perspective. And, you know, you will build up a much stronger sense of your motivation and your fit for an individual school. And that comes across, right? It comes across in the written application, but it comes across incredibly clearly in the interview. So, you know, you can perhaps kind of fake it in the written application, but you can't fake it at the interview stage. And that's something that takes time to build up. And it's not something that you can just sort of figure out in in a few weeks leading up to your interview. So the earlier you start that process, the better. Now, I know some candidates make elaborate Excel sheets of every possible attribute Uh, whether it's subjective or not, uh, to help them decide which schools to apply to. Do you advise doing that massive Excel sheet on everything from admission standards to pay to culture to what the strengths of the school academically might be? Or should it be less, you know, a a less a quantity thing and more of a kind of feel thing? I think it depends how you think. And so, you know, if you're a strategy consultant, you probably want to have your beautiful Excel spreadsheet with all of your research. You know, it it does help to write things down, I think, and sort of capture some of those differences because there's a there are a lot of different criteria and you need to figure out, you know, what are the criteria that are important to you? Is it, you know, the electives on offer? Is it 
the, the opportunities to do campus exchanges? Is it the, you know, the recruiters and a particular target employer that you have and they recruit more people at this school than anywhere else? You know, so you have to figure out what are the criteria that are important to you. So I think it's worth thinking about that, reflecting on that and writing it down. And I think it is helpful to, to make notes as you do your research because it, it's complex, right? There are a lot of different criteria to think about. There are a lot of differences between these programs. And as, if you're researching a lot of different programs, it can be hard to keep all of that in your head if you're you know, doing this over several months. And then, you know, hopefully that information will be useful for you when you're preparing, you know, writing essays and you're explaining why you're applying to this school or you're preparing for your interviews, that, that will all be useful material to refer back to. Maria, do you favor Excel spreadsheets? <laughs> I mean, look, you do you, right? If someone, <laughs> if someone out there is an Excel spreadsheet, you know, knock yourself out, kid. I don't necessarily think it's necessary. I think it's overkill. I think that there is too much of an emphasis on the numbers side of things where someone's like, oh, I have a 740 GMAT. Therefore, I'm getting in at this school with a 730 GMAT. And it's like, no, that's not automatically, that doesn't mean necessarily <laughs> anything. So yeah, I, I am, I'm not personally a huge spreadsheet person, but I can see how I do think you should have some sort of notes or, and I also agree with Caroline. I think walking into this process with a list of priorities, like what is it, what does matters to you? Do you most want to live in a certain city after you graduate? Are you really keen and desperate to get into a specific industry? If so, some schools will be infinitely better for you, even if those schools are not quote unquote highly, as highly ranked as other schools. So I do think walking in with a set of priorities is really important. I think something else people can start doing this early in the game is number one, stepping up their impact at work or in the community, right? There's there's never been a case where someone's been like, oh man, I shouldn't have, have achieved so much before applying, right? Like you, you've got nine months now, eight months, you know, Look around your office, look around your work, ask, can I, can I be doing better at something? Can I be contributing a little bit more? Is there, you know, if you're on a volunteer board, can I, is there some sort of unique Zoom fundraiser I can think of to launch? So really challenge yourself. So then that way, when you are writing your essays, which you won't be doing now, uh, you'll be doing that a little later in the summer, but when you are writing your essays and you're writing your resume, you've got a lot of fodder to talk about. And then the second thing I would also add to that is start thinking right now about who you want to be your recommender. Realize that most schools want two letters of recommendation. And so if you are perhaps not on great terms with some senior people in your company, if you know you have some bridges, what is it, some fences to mend or some bridges to unburn, I, <laughs> uh, if, you, if, you have, if you need to start, to put it bluntly, currying favor with Fucking up. (laughs) Go for it, man. Get them, you know, get them the Starbucks gift card or whatever it is that you can do to make their lives easier. Right. Now, of course, what also happens in the spring, so let's say you have your GMAT score and you're doing this uh, intensive research and you're trying to figure out, okay, narrow down the schools that I might be really interested in and doing your research on each of them. The next step is in spring and early summer, usually in the spring, the new essay questions come out. And now every admissions officer always says that the the process of going for an MBA requires a good deal of introspection, not only about who you are, but who you want to be. Is that a bunch of hooey? Not at all. I think think that's one of the big benefits of of applying to business school. Hopefully that the candidates actually have the opportunity to take a step back and sort of take stock of where they are. 
and where they want to go. And it's not something that, you know, you necessarily think about every day, as, as we were saying, you know, MBA candidates often have incredibly demanding jobs and, and not necessarily a lot of free time to sort of sit back and think about what they've achieved so far and the strengths that they've built and their opportunities for development and think about, you know, really what do they want in the short, medium and longer term in their career. And it's a great time to do that after you've been working for two or three, four years. You've got some, you know, solid professional experience. You've got a much better idea than when you're coming out of college of, you know, what you're capable of and what you want to achieve in the long term. So I think, you know, it's really a wonderful moment for a young person to sort of, you know, take that step back and reflect. And hopefully the MBA admissions process is not just, you know, a bunch of hoops to jump through. You know, often we work with clients and, and they feel that, you know, through the process of developing their applications, they've really learned something about themselves. You know, they've, they've gone through this reflection process, this introspection process, and, and, and really, you know, appreciate that opportunity to sort of have a better understanding of what they've achieved, of who they are, the skills that they've built, and therefore, you know, how they can take their career forward. So, so you know, hopefully it is a, is a useful process. And now, is this something great. you do by going to the mountaintop and, and sitting in a meditation pose and pondering the future? <laughs> is that what you did, Maria? No. Yes, you can do, I did. I, you, you, know. you can do it during it your lunch a, break. It was a silent meditation retreat. I'm sure you can imagine. I'm very good at this point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. And then you start drafting essays, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I, I think that, that the reflection process can mean different things for different people. And it's also something that takes some time. So, you know, for some people it can be useful to take a break and perhaps, you know, take a few days off work to really focus on, on that. I think it's also useful for people to get some feedback from others, right? I mean, perhaps through your job, you get feedback regularly from people in your firm, but I think it can be useful to get feedback from when you're going through this introspection process, get feedback from other people who know you very well, you know, friends or family, you know, former bosses or former colleagues to ask them, you know, what do they see as your strengths and weaknesses? That can be super interesting and might sort of un uncover some things that you hadn't thought about. So I think, you know, it's definitely worth investing in that, in, in that effort before you start brainstorming on your essays. Now, Caroline, don't you wonder how introspective Maria was before she applied to Harvard? <laughs> I do. <laughs> wow. I'm sure she, she went for that um, meditation retreat. I did. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'll, I'll jump in a little on the, on the whole introspection topic. I think with this process, as with literally anything else in life, you get out of it what you put into it. So I do think that ideally, I, ideally candidates will really use this as a time to maturely assess where are they, what are they, you know, where do they want to go? Do they even need an MBA to get there? Maybe a part-time MBA is actually better for them, or maybe something else is better for them. Like I, I, ideally, I think students would would do prospective students would do that. I do think, though, however, that it is possible to not not game the system, but I think you can sort of skip a little bit of, and it depends on the school and the essay question, right? You can't skip introspection for Stanford, right? What matters most to you and why, which has been their perennial essay question for a zillion years. But there are other schools where it's it doesn't require so much introspection. Ideally, I think people will do it, of course, but I also think that it's not always necessary. 
especially for very specific essays. And writing can be fun. I mean, I always think that writing is a part of thinking. So for me, I think as I write, and I think more deeply than simply going into some sort of quiet space and imagining one thing or another. I mean, getting something on paper or today on a computer screen is very helpful to the process of introspection or, or just thinking about anything for, for that matter. So is there a particular approach or technique that you to suggest for tackling the essay questions for the schools that you want to apply to? Well, I, I think that, you know, if you've done that introspection, then I, I would suggest, first of all, sort of brainstorming some of the themes that you want to come across in your application as a whole before you start writing individual essays, because you want to think about, you know, what are the key messages that you want to come across overall, right? And and that may then be reflected in your essays. It may also be reflected in your resume. It may be reflected in your recommendation letters. So I think, you know, as sort of a, a, a step in between that reflection and then actually writing the essays is thinking about those key messages and key themes that you want to highlight and the strengths that you want to be apparent and shine through, not just in sort of, you know, in a sort of piecemeal fashion in your application. So to have that sort of strategy for really, you know, how do you want to position yourself in the applicant pool? What what do you want them to remember you for when they've read your application? And then once you've figured that out, then it's easier to start to like look at individual essays and okay, so how should I how should I tackle that? And and you know, I think it's worth, you know, going through a creative sort of brainstorming process before you you really um, flesh out the material. Maria? Yeah, actually. So, I mean, in, I hope it's okay to say this, in my software tool, I actually have like a brainstorming module where you try to think of all of the different stories that you have as evidence that you possess certain traits. And then I have you think about like, okay, which of this story which personality traits does this story show? This story, story X shows that I have a global mindset. Story Y shows that I'm a supportive team player. And so I have you kind of match, drag and drop those words to match to the stories. And then in a future, in, in a future step, I tell you which ad, which attributes I think a specific essay is looking for. So then you can sort your stories based on which ones you have assigned those attributes to previously. So if you get to a question. And it's like a question about having a diverse mindset about a global, the global workforce. You can say, okay, only show me all of my stories that have global, the global tag associated with them. So that's how I, I guide people through it. And then I also break down the essay because essay questions are rarely just one question. Right. There are usually sort of sub questions underneath them. And so I will, to try to, to try to get rid of that huge writer's block that I think a lot of us experience, I try to break down the big question into little mini questions. And my whole goal with that is to say like, okay, if you just, you know, this big question is super scary. What matters most to you and why? Wow. Where do you even start? But I'm like, okay, can you start here? Can you start here? And I try to ask little mini questions to try to get those juices flowing. Right. Uh, Okay. And then let's say you finish your draft. Uh, You should be where? Uh, Should you be midsummer when you finish your drafts and then start to show them to people that you trust? Is that roughly right? Well, I would. I think it's good to start working on your applications in the, in the spring, really. Um, mm-hmm. So by the summer, I mean a lot of the deadlines have they've crept earlier and earlier. Right? True. So, 
So you you want to be ready to sort of hit the submit button by most schools by, you know, you want to be ready by the beginning of September, end of, end of August. So, so I would say that it's good to have a decent draft that you want to get feedback on, you know, two or three months ahead of the deadline, because it can take some time for these things to mature. And you don't want to be and the other things come up, right? And you don't want to be then stressing about it in the final few weeks running up to the deadline. And we're talking about round one deadlines here. Obviously, if we're if you're going to apply in round two, you're going to have a lot more time. Round one deadlines typically begin in early September and run through the entire month, even into early October in many cases. How do you know you got it? How do you know you nailed it? And how do you know you can feel comfortable hitting the submit button? Yeah, it can be tough because I think, you know, candidates spend so much time working on their applications that it can be difficult after a while to see the wood for the trees and to know how will this appear to some someone who's reading this for the first time. It can be impossible to imagine that after you've sort of reread <laughs> it for the hundredth time and sort of tweaked the odd word here and there to sort of whittle down the word count, etc. So, you know, at that point, I think, you know, it, it's great to get an, a fresh set of eyes, um, yes. someone who hasn't looked at it before. I mean, something that we do is we have a primary coach who will work with you on a day-to-day basis, and then we bring in a director who will just bring a fresh set of eyes to the application and bring that sort of admissions committee perspective and look at the whole application package all together and give feedback on, you know, how is this looking and what can you do to improve your presentation? Okay, and, Caroline, and that, worst case scenario, which uh, I'm sure you've had clients that have gone through many, many, many rewrites. Do you recall the client that meant to, went through the most rewrites ever for you and how uh, many they were? <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess I'm, I, I can be quite tough with people and, and sort of, I don't think I've had anyone who's gone much beyond sort of seven or eight drafts myself, but I know, I know, you know, it often goes beyond that. And I have colleagues who have struggled through, you know, sort of 20 drafts or so. So I don't think it's helpful for anyone because, you know, you're not necessarily, I, I think sort of the optimal is sort of five, maybe five or six drafts. And if you go much beyond that, then you're probably sort of revisiting things that don't need to be revisited and you're probably not actually improving your application. And unfortunately, sometimes people sort of get stuck in this cycle of questioning what they've written. And so maybe I should do this differently and rewriting it. And and then, you know, it just goes on and on. So that can be difficult sometimes to sort of get people to break out of that. But that's also... Hopefully, the value of working with a coach is that they can help you to figure out, you know, how to best tackle something so that you don't end up having to rewrite it and start it all over again five times. Maria, what's the upper limit on one of your clients? Oh, God, I don't even know. Probably something like 18. I mean, some some people yeah. really, to Caroline's point, some people really get a little out of control with it. Those are probably the same people who make the spreadsheets with 400 columns in them. <laughs> I don't know. Could be probably correlation there. You know, I think it's important for applicants to realize at the end of the day that it's about the content of the essays, not about the specific adjective that you choose or like, should I use a dash here or a semicolon? Dash or semicolon? (laughs) Dash or semicolon? Like, look, it's really, they're trying to get to know you. They're trying to get to know your story and figure out how do you manage? What kind of a person are you? 
that sort of stuff. And so if you're if you're beating yourself up and, and really nitpicking over, oh, should I say unnecessary or superfluous, which were like it just don't stop torturing. It's not a writing competition. You're not applying for a creative writing seminar. It's not the Iowa Writers Workshop or whatever that famous workshop. Like it's not about the semicolon versus the dash. So at a certain point, as long as you think the story is coming across and coming across clearly, especially for someone who doesn't live in your world. I think this is one of the most common mistakes I see is that people understandably are completely caught up in their day-to-day thing. So if they say something like, oh yeah, so we sent the thing to the client, they assume that everyone understands what that means, but because that's what they've lived and breathed day in and day out for the past four years. But realize that the person reading your essay doesn't work at your company. They don't work in your field. And so just making sure that the story is coming across clearly and that you've explained anything that might be confusing for a stranger who doesn't live in your world. And then once you're there, you know, you can, you can sort of just send it off and say, vaya con Dios. (laughs) (laughs) Godspeed. It's, it's off, it's in. And then, you know, don't, don't drive yourself crazy. It's not worth it. Now, every year, The Harvest, which is the MBA student newspaper at Harvard Business School, uh, attempts to publish the actual essays of successful candidates who become students. And one thing you quickly learn by reading those essays is that they're all over the place. Some are incredibly boring and prosaic. Others, you might even accuse the person of having spent too much time reading The New Yorker. But it, it, you're right. You don't have to do a beautifully crafted personal narrative that's highly intimate, that tells some sort of shocking story one way or another uh, to grab someone's attention. It can be very practical and very straightforward and merely talk about your professional accomplishments, what you've, you know, why you've chosen your profession, whatever. We always have, you know, I always pay the harvest at Poets and Quants money so we can reprint some of those samples. Just, and I, I think it's helpful for people to know that they don't have to be perfect. Yeah. And, and the other thing you don't, up. yeah. And the other thing you don't know is what role an essay played in an acceptance. In many cases, everything outside the essay really mattered the most and the essay was pretty irrelevant. In other yeah. cases, the essay counted for a lot. So it's all over the place. Now, now when going through each of these steps, I've got to tell you, I'm exhausted. It sounds so damn daunting. So are we. There's so many hurdles to overcome. How much time, for God's sake, should someone properly invest in this timeline from now until, let's say, round one in the fall? That there are, there's a lot to do. I think you know you need to have a number of hours per week, right? So it it, it depends on um, on your availability. But it's a part time you know, job. It is a part time <laughs> job. I mean, when I was applying, you know, I, I tried to do like you know a couple of hours a day if I could in the evening after work on GMAT prep or then on research, etc. You know, I, I think it's good if you could just carve out the time into your schedule and make sure that you break it down into bite-sized pieces. Because as you say, I mean, it can seem very daunting. There's just, there is a lot to do. But if you start now, right, there's a heck of a lot that you can achieve between now and September. True. So I think, you know, there's there's a saying, you know, the, the, it, it's a cinch by the inch and it's a trial by the mile, right? So I'm a great believer in sort of breaking things down into bite-sized pieces and just, you know, start early and, and get cracking with things. Maria, were you someone who was disciplined enough to spend uh, several hours every single week 
long before the application was due? Or were you a crammer? So I actually didn't make the decision to apply to business school until about two and a half months before. Like I, I didn't really have it on my radar because I was very happy at my at my job and I loved where I was working. I loved my job. And so I had a really good friend though from college who I was living in Hong Kong at the time and she was also living in Hong Kong and she she worked in academic publishing, right? So she was really looking for a change. So she started talking about planning to apply to business school. And that's when I started doing the research and I started thinking, well, maybe it might be a good insurance policy, you know, if I ever have kids and all those things that we've talked about on multiple other episodes about the reason why it's good to get an MBA. Right. And so I kind of did it at the last minute I probably would have done it at the last minute, even if I would have <laughs> been aware of it for months in advance. But I, I spent the first several years of my career thinking, I don't even need an MBA. This is great. I love what I'm doing because I was growing quickly. And then I sort of hit a bit of a ceiling and I was like, oh boy, <laughs> it's a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a letdown when you start to plateau. So yeah, no, I did everything really, really quickly. Okay. But I don't advise doing it. And also because I was so not... Like I didn't really feel that I needed the MBA. I only applied to two schools. Harvard and Wharton. Mm. And I was like, if I don't get in, I don't get in. Like I love what I'm doing. So cool. Um, <laughs> really, seriously. And so that's a great attitude to it. have. I will say, I will say one thing that's I, you know, I took I took the GMAT about two weeks before the round one deadline, and I only applied to Wharton round one. And then when I got into Wharton round one, I was like, oh my God, maybe I can get into Harvard. I, I started the process <laughs> being like, I'm not even going to apply to Harvard because I'm never getting in. So that's another. You applied round two. I did apply round two. Yes. And got in, obviously. Yes. And the rest is history. <laughs> it's a beautiful story with rainbows. There you go. Okay. Well, uh, to everyone out there, don't be too daunted by this. The idea of starting early is to make the process manageable and to do it in bite-sized pieces. So unlike Maria, you know, two months before and taking the GMAT and cramming, you're not, uh, not recommended. About it. You're really good at <laughs> now I happen to be a crammer myself. I'm happy to stay up all night long to do things and have no hesitation in doing so. And I do not have the discipline that Caroline certainly has. So they're all styles, all methods, but if you can start, you should be starting now. And I think the timeline that we outlined for you is a really good timeline. And take out the calendar and, and set yourself uh, goals uh, for each week, what you want to accomplish, what you want to do. And I think if you do that, you will likely have a more successful outcome. All right, Maria and Caroline, thank you so much. A pleasure as always. And for all of you out there, thanks for listening to Business Casual, our weekly podcast.